This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, the weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 44, and we're recording on Friday, March 14th, 2014. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're the editors of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, here we go. We're back. Good morning. Yes, we are back. It is Pie Day. Oh, this, yeah, it is. It is. It is. Um, uh, which is, no I one... guess, an excuse to make puns about uh, baked goods, as far yeah, as I can Yeah, tell. nobody brought me any pie this morning, mm, well, but... There's still time. Richmond does have a restaurant that only serves pie. It's called Proper Pie, and it is amazing. And well, in I the meantime, I'm... you can just do some geometry because that's the right. other. I mean, that's the other. That's just yeah, as satisfying as a nice. That's not big nearly as delicious. Pie. pie is pie is so much better than geometry. <laughs> and I think maybe I'm. This is like my inner Leslie Nope of pie coming out. Mm. Mm. Um, so that's where I am this morning. <laughs> that's that's I know. Uh, now you know I feel every day that I should be eating pie right now. Just an eternal deep sadness that and I'm not. unsatisfiable longing for yeah. pie. Yeah. Uh, we got some follow up from listeners. It. You want to do that? Uh, so Shannon from River City Reading here in my fair city of Richmond, uh, when we talked about reading stats over the last couple of weeks, uh, suggested that we check out a service called Literally, which you can find at literally.io. And we'll drop that into the show notes. But it's an app where you can track your reading. You can put in uh, what books you're reading, how many pages they have, all sorts of super nerdy data collection stuff. Uh, looks like you do have to enter it yourself. Uh, so if if that's a thing that you are interested in doing, it's not automated, but a cool way to uh, just, you know, check out and collect info about your reading life and maybe start paying attention to uh, what the trends are. Mm-hmm. Like if you read more on the weekends than you do on the weekdays, how many average pages per sitting you have, that sort of thing. Um, definitely worth looking at. So thanks, Shannon, for telling us about that. Very and cool. uh, last week when we were talking about the smartwatch with the the app that flashes one word at a time to ramp up your words per minute and make you a speed reader. You and I sort of both started dreaming about what else these watches could do. And one of those uh, was a cooking app that might read to you as uh, you were cooking and you could say forward or back or like tell it how to progress the recipes as it instructed you in the kitchen. And it turns out that this thing exists already. What? The future. It's the future and we didn't even know it. It is so the future. It's great. Uh, Aaron Riley let me know on Twitter that the Jamie Oliver recipes app does these things. And so I downloaded it to my iPad mini. Um, The app is free and then you pay like either a monthly fee for the subscription or you can buy packages of recipes and uh, they it narrates to you what to do. And you can say next or back and it progresses through the recipe uh, as you stand in the kitchen. It is amazing. And the wow. recipes look really good. Um, I didn't actually cook anything from it yet because I'm lazy, but uh, I did enjoy poking at it and talking to it and telling it what to do. Uh, So thank you, Aaron, not just for the awesome app recommendation and for what will hopefully uh, be an improvement in my kitchen in days to come, but also for informing us that the future really super is here. So driving directions, that's one thing where like turn by turn voice navigation, cooking's Mm -hmm. another one. Um, I'm trying to think of what else could be Building Ikea furniture. Oh, that's true. And it would just keep saying, no, really, look at the directions. No, really, read the directions. No, really, read the directions. <laughs> no, Just, really, oh. that screw's not extra. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess that'd be a good one. How about like uh, like computer, like so walking you through a new software program? That would oh, be pretty cool, right? that would be right? cool. I think workout stuff oh, yeah. would be good. Uh, I mean, it's, you know? that's what a personal trainer is, right? Push it. Three more. Three more. Yeah, three or more, even, three like, more. not even motivational, but like, uh, you know, now you do 15 You have sit-ups. now burned 38 calories. Right. And, um, right, because it can count your calories and your steps if you're wearing it on your wrist. So if it told that's you, you know, jog and you started jogging and then it told you when to stop and start walking and you could do interval training or you could do like uh. drop and give me 50 push-ups and then you do those and you say, okay, next. And then it would clock like how long it took you to do your 50 push-ups. Oh, I like that's a good one too. There's all sorts of stuff we could use this for. Um, it's like a butler for getting stuff done. Um, 
All right. Can can David Allen make a get yeah, stuff done I, I thing know, that will right? just talk to me all day long? Move <laughs> to the next task on your list. <laughs> Weekly review. Weekly review. <laughs> all right. So before we get into the big stories, let's do the first sponsor. Tell me about our first sponsor. Our first sponsor this week is Swoon Reads. They are back. Swoon Reads is a new model of publishing that's dedicated to finding undiscovered talent uh, by harnessing the power of a community of readers. And they're not just saying it's a community. It actually is a community. They Yay. have um, YA romance writers and then a ton of readers who just love YA romance. And so writers put up their unpublished manuscripts and readers get to read and comment on on them and uh, the folks who run Swoon Reads, who are also from Macmillan Publishers, um, pay attention to that. And they promised when they launched it uh, back in the fall that they would be publishing the best works that they found in Swoon Reads. And now they're making good on that promise. Uh, they have their first list of trade paperback originals. And the very first one of those, which is coming out in uh, this fall of 2014, is called A Little Something Different by Sandy Hall. And it is an irresistibly sweet and completely original, uh, completely, <laughs> <laughs> this morning with sound effects, yep. uh, completely original contemporary romance about two college students who don't realize that they are meant to be. And it's told from 14 different viewpoints. Uh, so I will be keeping a lookout for that because rotating narrator, uh, narrators are a thing that I really, really, really love. Um, but Swoon Reads is doing really interesting things. You can find them at swoonreads.com and they're all over social media. Um, and there's more Swoon Reads books coming soon. So they are really, you know, moving into this future of publishing, of not just uh, giving anybody a place to feel like they're getting criticism, but where you can get real criticism from real readers who love the genre know it, and who know it well and get a shot to have your work published. Pretty great. Very so, uh, cool. Yeah. Thank you, Swoon Reads, for sponsoring the show again. And uh, listeners, if you want to check it out, swoonreads.com. They're on Twitter at Swoon Reads. They have a Facebook page. Um, let them know that we sent you and support the show. All right. So, shall we dive into a little controversy? There's always a little. There's always a little. There's a lot of. We have some good meaty things this week. There, there is. That is true. Um, so we talked a while back about on the show, and I don't remember what it brought it up. Oh, it was wasn't it the the kid who wrote a letter or something? Yes, saying, yeah. There was a little girl who wrote a letter about um, sexism in books for kids. Yeah, uh, books for boys, books for girls. That kind mm -hmm. of labeling. And this week, um, a petition was started, I think, over in jolly old England, if I remember correctly. Let's see if I've got this right. Um, yeah, in, mm -hmm. the, in the UK is where it started. Um, a couple of titles, like The Beautiful Girl's Book of Coloring, and it has a U in it, which is how I know, <laughs> or Illustrated Classics for Boys. Mm -hmm. um, a group wrote a letter to the publisher of um, a, a couple different publishers, actually, saying in this, I'll read the letter directly. Um, Please stop labeling books in the title or on the packaging as for girls or for boys. Children's publishing should always aim to open up new worlds for children, but telling children which stories and activities are for them based on their gender closes down whole worlds of interest. We're asking you to stop labeling books this way and let children decide for themselves what kinds of stories and activity books they find interesting sincerely so on and so forth mm -hmm. um okay so that's that's part of it do we yeah. want to talk about that before lo looping in the second piece or what do you want to do you want to, let's start um, there let's just let's yeah, pause let's there for there. There. and now it's available as a petition online so yes that, change so that org. A, link in yeah, the show notes for you you can check that out also so you go first i am totally in favor of this okay um you know i think I think it's problematic that we label toys and books and movies and all sorts of media um, as for boys and for girls and that those are different kinds of things. And we start labeling those, um, sending gendered messages about what boys should be and what girls should be before kids are even born. Like if you've ever been to baby showers, you have seen this in action. Um, and, and the way that we talk about what a little girl will be and what a little boy will be, and arguably boys get the better end of the stick in publishing and in, in media, little boys get to be adventurous and they get to fight dragons and they get to do all sorts of things. And little girls are given like princess dresses and baby dolls. And so you can be pretty and you can have babies. Uh, I, th I think those are problematic messages and anything that we do with media that opens up the options for every child is a, is a good 
thing. Um, if little girls self-select into wearing dresses, that that is fine. Um, parents and communities are still going to have the you know messages about what they believe to be essential gender traits and uh, where you fall on the spectrum of believing in gender as a socially constructed category versus a natural one is uh, up to you. But I think this is a valuable conversation to have, if nothing else, about um, what do we what do we say about what we think about gender and what's expected of boys and girls? And, and that leads into what's expected of men and women. So I, I think even though people can dust it off as, oh, they're just kids, you know, it's not really harmful. Um, it, what we tell children affects what they believe about uh, who they are going into their adult lives. And that's certainly meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree on the general principle. I, I guess what I'm more interested in just because I don't think there's much to argue with in that regard. Mm. Um, it's, so it's the four girls and four boys part. So I guess what I'm thinking is if these two books, the Beautiful Girls Coloring Book and the Brilliant Boys Coloring Book, just took out the girls and the boys and left the content and the color schemes the same, mm. um, it, I mean, the messaging is clearly different. But that would certainly satiate the petition, at least as it's worded. So you mean like if the contents of the books were identical? Yeah. But they could still call the pink one girls and the blue one boys? Or yeah. Okay. Or, or, or vice versa. Or where you just take out the girl-boy name on the title mm-hmm. and leave the contents the same. So yeah. I, I'm not sure. I, I guess, I guess if you want to sign this position, I have absolutely no problem with it. And I would probably sign something like myself. I think there's a little bit, you know, kind of like treating symptoms rather than causes to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm never going to, I don't ever want to discourage someone from caring something they care about, but I don't know where the, I don't know where you fight this problem. I don't know if this is the the right place to put time and attention um, because I'm not actually sure that the girls and boys maybe even doing a lot of the buying these books. I think the parents and family members or people giving gifts do a lot of this kind of buying as well. And it's just a much more root problem um, in how we imagine gender to be. And I I don't know. I I, I totally agree that girls' imaginations and boys' imaginations get closed off by this kind of thing. But I'm not sure that it's – this step is the place. I don't know, but I don't know where to go. I mean, hmm. maybe this is where you can go because this is like yeah. the most obvious and like it's on the book. It said four girls, mm-hmm. pink, beautiful, four boys, blue, brilliant. Like Right, yeah. I think this is uh, this is an interesting place to go and I think this is a more effective place to start the conversation than uh, then the letter that the little girl wrote that we talked about several months ago, she wrote a letter to a bookstore. She was very upset or she complained to a, a bookseller who took the message to their manager um, that the books for girls that they displayed were really different in content from mm-hmm. the books for boys and that she you know, felt uh, you know, closed off and limited by that and offended by it. Um, bookstores can only sell what publishers make available to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so telling a bookstore that their display is problematic is one thing to do, but the it, it starts sooner. It starts with, I don't know if publishers are where it starts. It probably starts with what you choose to write or create. Um, or what you think people are going to buy. I mean, that's what it really right. starts, yeah, I mean, right? A lot, of, a lot of publishing is driven by what you think people will buy. Um but there's a there's a conversation to be had, and I do think it's more valuable to have it with publishers, with the source of the content, than with the people who are farther down the chain, mm-hmm. um, at least right now. Uh, if if this is where we're going, if we're moving towards um, not labeling um, books and media as four girls and four boys, then you you start with the people who create and sell the media, right? Yeah, I mean, and you know that the way that you should really do this is not writing a letter to the publisher. It's boycotting the books Mm -hmm. and telling people not to buy them. Because in a related story, Michael O'Mara, who is the publisher of Buster Books, which is actually sells the, oh, actually, no, he doesn't actually sell the two we mentioned, but like other books like this. Yeah. There are a ton of things like this where it's like the, you know, adventurous book for boys and the beautiful book for girls. Yeah. He said, we're not going to stop doing stuff like this because they sell. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Let, let me read his direct language because I don't want to misquote him before I stomp on. Or no, I am not going to stomp <laughs> on the guy. But uh, it's a fact of life how a very large percentage of people shop when buying for kids. Do it by sex. Um, 
I'm not sure that sentence makes a lot of sense. But anyway, we know for a fact they are when they're shopping on Amazon, they quite often type in books for boys and books for girls. Um, all boys don't like one thing and all girls the other. But the fact is a lot of boys like the same things and a lot of girls like the same things. We can't ignore the fact that they are definitely different. Hmm. Okay. This man is really pretty confident about fact. Yeah. Uh, facts of life, cultural constructions are not fact. I mean, they are right. facts, but they're not it's, endure, it, endure, uh, in the not indefatigable. Um, red flags. And I don't know how he knows what search terms Amazon people are typing into because Amazon tells nobody that information. Yeah. No one knows what people are typing into yeah. Amazon. Nobody. But let's just say that he's right. Just that he's right about people searching from this way. Wouldn't it be amazing if you got the same results there you go. when you typed in books for girls and books for boys mm -hmm. because books labeled differently didn't exist. And so you got to choose from the whole pool. Yeah. And decide for yourself. I, I think there's, I, I do think it's probably true that people are, are looking for uh, gifts for boys and gifts for girls. I know when I was a bookseller that we would get, you know, aunts and uncles and friends of families and people coming in and saying, you know, like, I'm looking for a book for a five-year-old boy. And that the feeling as a bookseller then is like, okay, well, what else about this five-year-old boy? Like the fact that he's five and a boy doesn't really tell you anything about mm -hmm. what kind of book he's going to be interested in yeah yeah um on the other hand i'm just saying let's say that he's let's say that he's not an idiot and that he actually there's some truth to the the meta scale thing that there's a there's a big centralized group around around kinds of books for boys and books for girls i don't know if you're gonna i mean publishers are in this to make money and so the way to hit them is not shame it's money Mm -hmm. Right, so I'm not really arguing that you to 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 let these publishers do whatever they want, um, but don't sign a petition. Tell people not to buy it, not to buy these books, mm -hmm. and they'll, or, they'll stop making it. Yeah, I think that's more effective. Um, speak with your dollars. I, I I do think though that this argument of we're going to keep making these because these are what people buy is. That, that's a circular argument. This is what we make available to people. So it's what they have to choose from. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they buy from what's available. If you stopped printing books that say four girls and four boys on them, and someone walked into a bookstore and asked for a book for girls, um, if the bookseller said, like, I'm sorry, there's nothing labeled for girls, they don't make that kind of book anymore. But here is another thing. I would guess that person then is just going to buy the other thing. They're not going to never buy a book for a girl just because it's not labeled for girls. If you change what's available in the market, um, then consumers have to make different choices. Yeah. And on the other hand, he says, um, I'm just looking at the stats. He says, okay, great. So, I mean, again, I'm paraphrasing and making him sound more like a jerk than he might be. Well, it's a fact of life. 2,000 people signed this position the first day, but we sold 500,000 copies of the girls' book. That math is extremely hard to argue with. Mm -hmm. um, the statistics tell me I'm going in the right direction. Well, we can argue about what statistics can or can't tell you. Um, we would never publish a book that demeaned one sex or the other. I think... The, by calling one beautiful girls and brilliant boys, you have already done that. Yes, you have. Um, Jack Hole. So I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I guess I guess I just I I guess what I'm trying to do is recognize the complexity of the problem, and yet you have to attack it somewhere. And so maybe even if it's not the best way to attack it, attacking it is just good to do, even if it's an imp. This is something. This is a trap we sometimes fall into. Is well, that's not going to do what exactly what you wanted to do, but. And but there's no perfect way mm -hmm. of well, getting it, started it, the the ball. This rolling has gotten on this people talking about it, and so bringing attention to mm -hmm. the problem is valuable in and of itself. And then if you, as a parent or an aunt or uncle or a friend of someone who's having kids, um, agree with this, or if this is the first time you've ever thought about what might be going on with books labeled for yep. girls and books labeled for boys, then it's great that this conversation came up, that we're talking about it in the book community now. And it gives you an opportunity to make different choices about the kinds of things that you buy. Um, and if nothing else, to think about the, the kind of messages that you're sending to kids. Um, I want to just go back to the beginning because I, I'm now struggling with what I think is a more interesting question than this one about this guy and the book. But so the two books, if you have the beautiful coloring book and it's pink and it's got butterflies and like cakes glitter. and glitter, if you just called it beautiful coloring book and left it as it is, just took girls out mm -hmm. and you took the brilliant coloring book, took boys out 
and it's got a Viking helmet and a kite and a shooting star and some sort of ray gun, and you left those, that would, that would obey the letter of the petition. But I still think it would, the spirit would not be, I'm just not sure that yeah, getting guess, rid of the, because the, it's even, it's, I guess it's even more like subtly gendered. Yeah. And the one with the pink cover is still going to get shelved with girl stuff. And the right. one with the blue co cover is going to be shelved with the boy stuff. Like if you've ever walked down the Target toy section at mm -hmm. the holidays, you've seen it's a really striking thing that there are like three aisles of pink things uh -huh. and the aisles are literally labeled like girls. Are they <laughs> are they labeled girls? Because I our local Target I, Saturday mornings, uh, my son and I often will make a Target run to get all the things that we need. You know, our hundred dollar Target run that mm -hmm. everyone does, and we'll go up and wander around the toy section. And I've noticed this too, but they it's not labeled boys or girls. I'm Mine gonna have isn't, to double least. check. It yeah, feels it, could be. it feels like I have seen that, but yeah. I could just be imposing right, it because yeah. it's well, so obviously. It might as well be. It yeah, might as it might well, as well be, be, but it isn't. Which I guess and, is kind of my point. And then the boy aisles yeah. have all kinds of colors in them, and they have cars, and they have dragons, and they have dinosaurs, and they have Legos, and things that you can build. Uh, and the girl stuff is sort of like ghettoized on its three aisles of baby dolls and you know fake cribs mm -hmm. and, and stuff. And so I think the like what you what i would want here is like one coloring book that's like a yellow cover that's awesome coloring book and like mm -hmm. some of the pages in it are butterflies with glitter and some of the pages are viking helmets and as you're a kid you can scroll through them and decide yeah. which ones you want to color in and maybe it occurred it's never occurred to you before that you're a girl and you can color a viking helmet but there's a viking helmet that's available to you yeah, and I'm I'm not an economist, but there's something to me that feels like you don't attack the supply side of the issue. You got to figure out how to attack the demand side, and it might just mm -hmm. take time and talking about it overtly, and well, getting people to be cognizant of what they're buying and what they're not buying. Like, well, this guy's explicitly saying we're not going to stop because these keep selling. Yeah, so the way right. to stop him is to stop buying. Stop them. buying them. So I guess maybe the message is, if you're buying books for kids, um, and if and if you have kids and people are buying books for you you might just say you know we don't want we don't want books that are overtly for girls and overtly for boys we want stuff that is just interesting for kids mm -hmm. um, and maybe we can suck up some of the demand and then the supply goes away and in that vacuum will be more interesting stuff for kids of all kinds yes all right um, man we now okay we've got we've got four <laughs> studies here so many. It was um, a good week. Good week. Let's start with this one I linked to the other day. Um, Reading literary fiction can make you less racist is the headline in the Pacific San Standard. Mm -hmm. And this was a study done at Washington and Lee that had a bunch of people read a snippet of a novel about a Muslim woman. Um, and then they did some tests after the fact to gauge people's reactions and how, how their thinking might have been changed. So they read this piece. Um, it's a 3,000-word extract from Shaila Abdullah's 2009 novel, Saffron Dreams. It's about a strong-willed Muslim woman and uh, moves to New York and is assaulted there and whatever. It's uh, literary fiction, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. And then the participants in the ex first experiment, these were 68 Americans recruited online, read the excerpt. And or a 500 word synopsis of the same scene. Okay, that's okay. the difference. Mm -hmm. um, in the in the synopsis, descriptive language, monologue, and dialogue were removed to reduce narrative quality. Um, then, after they were done, both groups, they viewed a series of ambiguous race faces and rated them on a four point scale. Are they Arab, mixed, more Arab than Caucasian? Three more Caucasian than Arab, or four Caucasian? Those who read the rich detailed narrative made significantly fewer categorical racial judgments compared to those who simply read the synopsis. Um, the second experiment featured 110 people similarly recruited, and then they were given this so the same thing, a synopsis versus the narrative, and then afterward they were given 12 images of the ambiguous Arab-Caucasian faces with varying levels of anger expression. So they got 12 images, so like from neutral mm -hmm. or happy to yeah. pissed off, I guess. And we're instructed to classify them on the four-point scale. Those who read the actual excerpt um, were less likely to characterize the angry faces as Arab, right? Mm -hmm. So what you happen in one, so what they're doing essentially is, is correlating racial bias 
to calling angry people of ambiguous race the, pre- the, the race you're prejudiced against. I didn't explain that very well, I don't think. Yes, but- psychology research does this a lot, where they try to take... Um, they use some piece of material to try to induce participants into a certain emotional or mental state and then examine if that was done successfully and if so, like what this state does to the way that you make judgments or the way that you make decisions about other things. And so what they were, the real question here is, does reading something that puts you in the shoes of um, a Muslim woman uh, who is possibly not the experience that you're living on mm-hmm. a daily basis if you're a participant in this research, uh, does reading something that puts you in the the mental state of thinking about someone else's lived experience uh, who's a member of a minority racial group make you uh, less likely to make stereotypical judgments um, after you've been put into that state uh, by reading the synopsis. And so the, like, that's the... I'm not doing a very good job here. It's, it's hard. It's a little that's hard the to exper- explain. That's the experimental manipulation. Right. The control group read the 500-word synopsis that doesn't put you in anyone's experience. And then the um, experimental group read the 3,000-word excerpt um, that is literary fiction that presumably does the thing that fiction is supposed to do, where it gets you to imagine yourself into someone else's life. So I, um, I got some problems with the experiment. Just I, I know you're shocked. Um <laughs> So it's 3,000-word narrative against a 500-word synopsis. Do you see where I'm going here? Mm-hmm. I mean, one of them is six times longer than the other. Yes. So it could, I mean, couldn't it be not stylistic or empathy magic that You're talking fiction about does? a confounding factor. Yeah, I mean, you just spent more time reading about that person. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, it's not just a qualitative but quantitative difference they did. Because I think it's interesting that they didn't, it wasn't just sort of like, did you read something about a Muslim woman versus you just came in out of the clear blue ocean? We gave you nothing. It was right. actually the information they were trying to codify in well, one way. I, I think a really interesting way to do it would have been um, like a control group who reads 3,000 words about something that has nothing to do with this. Yeah. Um, a group that reads 3,000 words where a white woman uh, moves to New York and is attacked on the right. subway. Yes. And then an experimental group that reads uh, the 3,000 words about a Muslim woman with the mm-hmm. same experience. And then you have a more robust comparison. Um, my problem started when the sample was 68 people. Yeah, recruited online um, who too. recruited online and then this there's a second experiment that had 110 people um that's a pretty small sample size um to draw and a, from and a and, biased one because of online and who's right, available and, and accessibility who's gonna do it. right um and it, I, we've talked about studies like this before. Um, readers like these, of, of course, course because, they do. because we can feel. Because I'm not our, racist and books are cool. And we can feel in our experience that reading does make us in some way walk in someone else's shoes or think about a different kind of lived experience than we have. And that's one of the things that readers talk about is loving about reading. And so this is a nice confirmation that, hey, reading really does what we think it does. Um, Or what we want it to do. Right, what we wish it could do. Um, The last time we talked about a study like this, I think we were, you and I were both skeptical about how long do these effects last. Um, you know, if you read 3,000 words and then you immediately, um, on the heels of reading those 3,000 words, are faced with these pictures, maybe your ratings change then. Um, but are there, I think the study goes towards maybe what can we do to create longer term effects? Yeah, like um, do you have to read 3,000 words about a Muslim woman getting raped every day every not to morning. be a racist jerk? Like that right, seems, like is, I don't know. It's called the the mere exposure effect is what they're getting at here. And if you've seen, like, remember the Titans, that's mm-hmm. what that plays on. That um, it's a social psychological um, phenomenon that just being exposed, like actually exposed in person um, to having some sort of interaction or relationship with a person from a different group than you are a member of makes you less uh, biased against that group of people. Because you move from the theoretical of this is what I think Muslim people People are like to the concrete of now I have experienced uh, an actual Muslim person or mm-hmm. an actual in remember the Titans, an actual black person. And so like that story um, becomes an illustration of what's really a fact, like known to be a fact in social psychology that getting people to work um, close and in person with people of different social groups makes everybody less biased mm-hmm. in the long run. Um, so if reading about a Muslim woman can do this in the short term, then maybe they're starting to think about um, how can we apply this 
principal to our at Washington and Lee, maybe like to our classrooms and our communities. And what can we do to Mm -hmm. American society to like encourage more mixing between groups and knowing that that will result in fewer stereotypes. You know what this just got me thinking about? The story we talked about last week where the jerk in South Carolina wants to withhold funding for reading stuff about lesbians. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) this is going to sound weird, but for what he wants to do, he's kind of right to be scared of it, if this Mm -hmm. is true, right? I mean, because like if the thing he really doesn't, if he doesn't want is to be increased empathy for um, non-heterosexual sexualities, Mm -hmm. Uh, then getting students that are freshmen to read about a complicated, um, nuanced lesbian is doing exactly the thing he doesn't want them to do. Exactly. I, right? I mean, the, way to, the way to maintain all of your stereotypes and biases is to never expose yourself to real humans right. in those groups that you are stereotyped and biased against. I mean, he's doing the wrong thing the right way, weirdly. Um, so... Yeah, anything else about this study? Like, again, I want this to be true just as much as everyone else because I like not being racist and I like books. Um, but I, I, I'm not comfortable being too pom-pommy about this, if you if you know what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, I think when, whenever studies like this come out and what we talk about here on the show all the time is the thing I really wish that publishing would do a better job of and the book community is asking the real questions here rather than just passing around the link and saying, oh, good, I knew it was true. <laughs> Literary fiction makes you less racist. Like it, It's such a good headline, but there are so many interesting questions to be asked and important conversations to be had about it. And uh, I want us to go to that place. And if this is true, then like this has implications for, you know, high school reading lists. Like um, we should be looking at um, making sure that all sorts of um, mm-hmm. all sorts of social groups and that members of all races are represented in the fiction that students read throughout their education in hopes that by the time we turn them loose on the world when they're 18, uh, if if books really do help you jump that empathy gap between your experience and someone else's, then we need to be assigning books that and exposing kids to to as many different kinds of books as possible so that they can bridge those gaps and better interact with an increasingly diverse uh, society, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Two more mm-hmm. problems, just quick mentions. Mm-hmm. So there were 12 images of ambiguous Arab Caucasian faces. Like, how do you do you like show them to a group of people and if half of them think they're Arabs and half of them think they're Caucasian, you say that's ambiguous? I think that they actually have like, that researchers have like banks of that, but, um, but That's what I mean. Like photos. that's how they've been yeah, they, determined that's how to they be. Get, that's how they get to those places. And so, they also didn't yeah. say anything about the gender of the faces that mm. were being shown. Like, so this is a, about, a, the story is about a woman who gets raped on a New York City subway platform. I mean, you could imagine, do the do the male ambiguous faces get the effect of the increased empathy, supposedly, or is it just the female faces, mm-hmm. or would it be... Oh, and now I'm wondering if the race of the rapist is mentioned in the synopsis, yeah. too, because if you read a, if you read about, if it's like a white man say. who's raping this Muslim woman, then maybe you are now imagining angry... Uh, white men and are more likely to rate those faces as angry. So lots of it. And lots we don't know anything about the, here. we don't know anything about the demographic of the mere 68 people. Right. Like, did they do an even gender split? Are they, how, do we need to think about their ages? I mean, and, they're I more mean, likely to be younger if they're knowing, online. I mean, most of like most psychology research is um, done with psych 101 students who get course credit right. for participating in studies on their campuses. And um, so often when you read journals or pieces like this, it'll, it'll be like 68 students at a Midwestern private <laughs> liberal yeah. arts university. Uh-huh. And, and like, you can sort of draw the lines there. <laughs> So I mean, in, in either case, the recruits uh, the recruits came from the same pool. But if sixty eight small enough, where if you have like a sixty forty gender split, or you happen to get a disproportionate number of um, racial minorities in your mm-hmm. group, you know it can skew the whole thing. Anyway, so it's interesting. I think I think we both think there's maybe some kernel of truth to it, but it's very 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 disclaimer heavy. Yes. Um, for me from this particular story. All right. So these aren't psychological studies, these next couple. These are actual stats that, I mean, I guess we could poke at methodologies if we want to, but um, the big one this week was the Pew uh, Research Center's Internet and American Life Project's findings on American engagement with libraries. Mm-hmm. 
And the top line story for me is that um, 79% of Americans, 16 and older, um, say report having at least a medium engagement with their public libraries. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a big, that seems like a big number to me. 79%? Mm-hmm. Like, whoa, it's hard to imagine. What other thing does 79% of Americans report having a higher engagement with, like stoplights? Like, it's hard <laughs> even to think what it would be. <laughs> I'm, I'm, and, I'm only I'm only like ten yeah, percent kidding about that. It's I, it was a surprisingly high number to me mm-hmm. too, and encouragingly high. Um, and they they break out the different kinds of library users in in really fascinating ways. Yeah. So what's your have, next pick for my next pick? Uh, what is my next pick? Okay, so of high engagement, they, yeah. the high engagement users, um, they consider to be, it's the like top 30%. Um, and those are library lovers, which make up 10% of the US population, mm-hmm. ages 16 and up, according to this study. And those are people who report um, frequent personal use of public libraries, and they have high levels of household library use. They include parents, students, and job seekers, and members tend to be younger with high levels of education. Mm -hmm. And then that high engagement group is also um, what they call information omnivores, which they say is 20% of the U.S. population over the age of 16, um, which seems I guess high to me, but I'm stoked if there are that many people who really are like just really into getting information about things. <laughs> right. um, they have the highest rates of technology use as well as the highest levels of education, employment, and household income, high levels of personal yeah. and household library use, and uh, slightly less frequent visits to the library than library lovers. So what came out to, to me there is we talk about often the importance and value of libraries for providing services um, to people who don't have access to them otherwise, or who haven't learned about, um, you know, information technology, or who are seeking, you know, just how to set up an email address or job application assistance, and all of the various uh, new kinds of literacy that modern day librarians are required for. But so I guess I was surprised that these like, that the folks that are the most into using their libraries um, come from higher levels of education and income. Yeah. Um, I guess there's a correlation there between level of education and literacy. And so the ability to read um, and to find reading to be interesting and fun and therefore to want to go to your library and love your library. Um, but that was, uh, that busted a couple of my stereotypes for yeah. sure. Um, I thought also I was interested in the non-engagement groups, like who are the people, mm. the 10%, they call them distant admirers. Yeah. Um, they never use a library, but people in their house might use a library or that they have favorable views of the library. And that's people who have never used a library. Yeah, right. Um, which I thought was interesting. So who they are. 27% Hispanic, hmm. which I think is telling, right? Mm-hmm. When's the last time you went to your library and saw a huge Spanish language section? I, the right. answer to that is going to be probably never. Right. Why go if there's nothing yeah, for you a, there? Somewhat higher proportion of men, 56% than the general population. Mm-hmm. They are more likely to have, a rel- have relatively lower levels of education. 62% did not attend college and household income. Those two things are highly correlated. Mm-hmm. Um, they are less likely than some of the other groups to know many neighbors, and they participate at rates that are considerably below the national benchmark for participation in other community activities. Okay, so if you don't do other things in your community, you don't you're go also to the got not going yeah. to the library. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, 40% of the distant admirers say that someone in their household is a library user. Hmm. And two-thirds of them, 68%, say libraries are important to them because they promote literacy and reading. So it's like... They know libraries are important or believe they d- they're important, but don't use them, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's like I'm glad that ESPN exists for people who care about sports, <laughs> yeah. but I don't really watch it. Mm-hmm. And then 4% is off the grid, and they're just like, these are the complete whack. I mean, mm-hmm. there's this very hard transients and men um, uh, haven't finished high school and don't connect. I mean, it, I mean, I guess you're not surprised, but that's only the, the bottom yeah. 4%. But that group that like doesn't use a library but feels good about libraries, I think is a really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, and then there's a small group that they mention, but there's not much information on in the study of people who have really negative feelings about libraries. Like, mm-hmm. I want to meet these people. Who are you <laughs> that feel really negative about... <laughs> Libertarians. 
They don't I like guess. the tax dollars. I'll buy my own books. Thank you very much. But wouldn't they want more information to be available to people so they can make their own decisions about things rather yeah, than... Yeah, but you buy that information. It's a free market, Rebecca. Um, <laughs> fully 91% of Americans <laughs> ages 16 and older say they know where the closest library is. I think that's very good. Mm-hmm. And 72% within, live within five miles of a library, um, which... Five miles? I guess that's pretty close. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm in a weird position because five miles in New York is like 10,000 miles well, in other places. Right. But also there are huge swaths of central, you know, middle America that yeah, um, right. are rural and where five miles is, mm-hmm. is close. Um, 93% of Americans say it would be easy them for visit their local library in person. So that, I mean, mm-hmm. it's hard to get a better number than that. Yeah, I that's mean, honestly. Great. Um, including 74% of those in the off the grid group. Hmm. Um, 82% of Americans say library websites would be easier for them to use. Um, hmm, yeah, uh, let's see. I think, I mean, that pretty much covers it. If you've got, uh, you can see the full, we'll, we'll do a link to the full study here. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pretty good. The high engagement stuff, info oh, omnivores, One I thought blah, was blah, really blah. interesting is that most Americans do not feel overwhelmed by information. Oh, in hey, this, that's it's a good down, one. It's down near the bottom. Um, huh. some the bottom eight, of what? The bottom of this link. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm um, deep into the main of the study here. So, ah, okay. uh, 18% of Americans say that they feel overloaded by information. A drop in those from 27% who reported information overload was a problem for them in 2006. Um, and those who feel overloaded are actually less likely to use the internet or smartphones and are more represented in groups with the lower levels of library engagement, which mm. that makes sense. Like if you're overwhelmed by what's available to you, you are probably more likely to put your phone down or to step away from the internet. But that drop from 27% saying they felt overloaded by information in 2006 to 18% feeling it is, I think, prob- really telling about what we're doing with um, with web literacy, because the internet is so much bigger than it was mm. um, in 2006. There's so much more information and um, writing being done exclusively for the web and reporting and Twitter is a thing now. And um, this seems to say that Americans are getting better at managing all of that incoming information, or we've just attenuated to it that we're, yeah, maybe it's all right there at our fingertips. We are flooded all of the time, but it doesn't feel scary in the way that it felt. Well, scary I've thought about that before as kind of like how I felt about New York when I first moved here, mm, uh-huh. like it was overwhelming. But you get used to it and you kind of know where to go and what to avoid and also mm-hmm. feel more comfortable exploring. Right. And so the, New York itself, well, I mean, New York itself has changed since I moved here, but the the overwhelmingness factor mm-hmm. hasn't changed. Um, let's just talk about the the top level group, the library lovers, the, the, the power users. Um, they're the most heavily female dominated group. 60, 62% of them are women. Mm-hmm. Their median age is 44 Okay. Um, they're a somewhat upscale group in terms of household income. 39% live in households earning more than $50,000 a year. Still relatively high proportions of them don't work. I think we're talking about single moms here. Yeah, and one that says 23% have recently lost jobs or seen yeah. a significant loss of income. 25% are currently looking for a job. Um, so yeah, single moms, um, p- women who aren't working, but who want to be working, 25% mm-hmm. currently looking for a job. 17% of these library lovers are students. Um, yeah, it's it makes it's sense. An, that, that sounds like um, uh, Judy Bookbuyer. We yeah. talked about the profile of the most mm-hmm. um, rapacious book buyers. Right, and it's, it says this group includes heavy book readers, 66, 66% of them read daily. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they, they are... didn't break out ethnic and racial in this group, which I think is very odd. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. It's down in Buffalo. Okay. 66% white. That's mm-hmm. not a surprise. Uh, also active socially and engaged with community events, and they rate their communities highly, and they're heavy internet users mm-hmm. as well, particularly engaged with mobile. It's a 72% of them go online with mobile devices. Mm. Um there's so much good stuff here, and I love the I love the Pew Research studies because their methodology is generally so very solid good yeah. that we get to ask interesting questions instead of cranky questions. No, that's right. We can we can look at effects and causes. Mm-hmm. Um, community types, I think, is interesting. Um, the South actually has the highest percentage of library lovers. Thirty two. Um, let's see. Yeah, thirty two percent. Of southerner uh, of library lovers are in the south, and 
Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I'm looking at this wrong because I should be looking at relative population. Mm. So the Midwest actually has more library lovers per capita. Oh, let me get this right. Okay, hold on. Let me, let me try this again. So in the Midwest, 23% of library lovers live in the Midwest, and the Midwest has 22% of the population. So it's about equal. The South has the lowest proportion of library lovers per capita, with 32% of library lovers, but they comprise 37% of the American population. Okay. So the group that actually does the best, it's only moderate, is the West. Mm -hmm. They have 26% of library lovers and just 23% of the population. Yeah, and there's also a note about the print traditionalists, which they mm. say make up 9% of the population, and that has the, of print traditionalists, which I guess is people who are sticking to print and aren't interested in eBooks, um, is the highest proportion of rural, 61%. Uh, of the print traditionalists um, live in rural populations of uh, white people. 75% of print traditionalists are white and 50% 50 per, 50 of them are Southern. So you've got the South uh, rural Southern white people is like the Venn diagram of most likely to strongly prefer print. And so then active library use or being a library lover makes extra sense there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that really does make sense. Um, library lovers also disproportionately also use the internet. Um, they also disproportionately have broadband at home and mm -hmm. they, let's see, have, um, disproportionate number have a tablet computer. I get uh, that probably tracks to personal income as mm -hmm. well. Um, wow. All right. I'm going to don't look at it. See if you can guess. So what percentage of library lovers report going to a bookstore regularly? What, what percentage do you think it would be? Mm. Well, did they say what regularly is? Yes. Oh, no, no, no. They they report, they say, do you go regularly to a bookstore? And they say yes or no. Oh, um, 65. It's 57. So you're pretty oh, close. Okay. 50, pretty close. Well, so th that's also an interesting point towards... Uh, the argument, like there's this sort of back and forth in publishing constantly of like, do, do people not buy books because they go to their library and publishing tends to say, no, no, libraries do like library use is correlated to book purchasing as well. Like very few people do exclusively one or the other. Yeah. Though 43% of library lovers then don't go to a bookstore regularly. I mean, I don't know if there's anything to make of that. I mean, I think it's problematic to ask regularly rather than to define regularly like because what i think is regular might be not what you think is regular. yeah but that probably moderates over a large group of sample right maybe um only, th there's a side bit of information that only, it says 32 percent of americans go to a bookstore regularly um i still want to know what regularly means yeah all right well i think we we got into that one didn't we <laughs> We like that. That's why right. we don't. We it's hard to hard to find Our, something we, we like more than that. This is going quickly this morning. I'm looking at the clock. I like, know. Oh. I know. We got to go. We got to go. Um, let's see. We've got two. Well, maybe we can do these two UK studies real quick. Um, a couple of stories in the Telegraph this week about surveys about Brits. Mm -hmm. And a new study finds that more ha than half the books lining shelves in British homes have never been read. <laughs> The survey uh, was conducted by the self-storage firm SureGuard. So we could have a biased uh, funding source, which makes a difference. Because I guess they might be interested in you moving your books to their um, unread books to their self-storage. Anyway, found the average home has 138 books in the UK and that um, half those books are unread. Oh, what? Weird, right? I... I'm calling so many shenanigans Where I wear. Give me okay. where your shenanigans. So what we know is that of 2,000 adults that are somehow connected to SureGuard mm -hmm. self-storage, like what if it's all customers of self-storage? That's really interesting. Like people who have to have storage spaces have more stuff. Um, yeah, but if you space. had a self-storage space, wouldn't the, you be more likely I mean, to keep your unread books in the storage? The average home having 138 books seems high. Yeah, so I um, guess it could be if you can afford a self-storage unit and that's how they got you. Yeah, I don't know. And then two-thirds of those who took part in the study said they kept their books because they were emotionally attached to them, while over one in four said they hated throwing anything away. Hmm. That's a little confusing. Yeah, I have some problems here. Mm -hmm. I have lots of problems here. I don't think this really tells us anything, except that of 
2,000 people that SureGuard found and asked questions to, a lot of them had books that they had never bought, which like, if you're in a home that has an average of 138 books, which seems like a really high national average, and I would guess is significantly higher than the number of books on the average American's bookshelf, you're probably like us in some ways. You're like a hardcore mm. reader who maybe buys books and it takes a while to get around to getting to all those things. Yeah, like, I guess so. Um, of the Two-thirds of those who took part said they kept books because they were emotionally attached to them. And while over one in four said they hated throwing anything away. Like, if you really truly hate throwing anything away, anything at all, like your gum wrapper, you're talking about a hoarding situation. Well, they'd have more than 138 books. That's true. All right. That, I mean, it's not <laughs> rigorous, but I thought that one was interesting. Two, let's do another UK That's the one. Department of Headlines Without Much Substance. Yeah. Um, this one I thought was really interesting. This was Reading Habits of um, Brits Again. Um, and... Again, I mean, if this is also, it's like it's got scare headlines, right? Deep mm -hmm. class divide in reading habits. It's actually not as deep as it sounds, but um, I guess they're they they can't, in the UK there there looks like there's these familiar acronyms of DES and ABS, and mm -hmm. basically DES are lower income people and ABS are higher income people. I don't know what it can, correlates to, but this is how this article uses it. Um, so. 62% of the higher income group read daily or weekly compared with 42% of the lower income group, which is a difference. But would you call that a divide? Like, that's not what the title is. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, no. And there, I mean, there are lots of factors there. Yeah. If you have higher income, you're probably not working three jobs and therefore yeah. or you Or you're have, not doing manual labor all day, so right, you're not you like have, world weary. Right. You have leisure time to read. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that was... That's part of it. The part I was most interested in is, um, let's see, uh, where does it say? Here we go. Um, the people, the ABs not only read more, but they also felt better about their reading, mm. which I think is, I've never thought about that correlation. Um, so that's, let's see, where did I... Where did I put that? Anyway, it's it, it's a it's around the same statistic. Oh yeah, I hear I see here. Um, yeah. eighty five percent of the ABs say that reading helps them helps yeah. to make them feel good, where sixty nine percent of DEs say that reading helps to make them feel good. So that's a sixteen percent. Yeah, so in the difference, the, the split between the reading one weekly at all um, mm -hmm. is twenty percent. So the gap there is a little narrower in the feeling one, but. I never really thought about like even if you do read in uh, in a lower economic bracket, you still feel differently about the reading. You get you manage to find time um, and space to do. And I don't know what to make of that or what the consequence mm -hmm. of that might be. But it's an a, a um, statistic I had never seen tracked mm -hmm. at all before. So I thought I'd throw that. Yeah, one that's in an there. interesting question to ask. I don't know why that would be necessarily, but. Um, Maybe we can ponder that and come back to it. All right, we got We got. We got to do another sponsor. Yeah, we're here. gonna. We got. We got to get out of here. Um, Warby Parker. So when you're feeling good about your reading, you're probably wearing glasses. Um, Warby Parker, it's great. I mean, I, it's one of those ideas that seems so obvious now. They're like, why didn't I think of that? But right. you know, I'm an idiot, so I don't think of things like this. Um, Warby Parker started with the idea that glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone. If you've ever been to a you know, a, your local optical shop or um, eyeglass store, you you know how much glasses um, with lenses cost, multiple hundreds of dollars. Warby Parker said, you know what? It's just plastic and ground glass. It shouldn't be that expensive. So Warby Parker's glasses start at $95. And that includes prescription lenses. It includes the anti-glare coating. It includes polarization. Um, they make their own glasses, and so they can keep costs down, and they make their own lenses. So that's that's what they really decided that they can do. Um, and they really modern, vintage-inspired style, so it's gonna, you're going to look great. Um, there's also another level, the titanium collection. That's their premium collection, but it only starts at $145. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, you buy them online. You One of the more beautiful e-commerce websites you're going to see, go to warbyparker.com slash bookriot. You can see all the models uh, and makes available there in multiple colors. And then what you do is it's super easy. You can get a free home try and you pick out five frames. They send them to you in a box. Um, 
Michelle and I just did this actually last week. So they come in this nice little box where they each get their little slot and they have prescription free glass in them. So, you don't, you know, of course it doesn't have prescription and you try them on the mirror. You can show them off for people. You can take pictures of them, send them to people on your phone. And then if you don't want any of them, send them back. You haven't spent any money. Pretty great. It's pretty brilliant. And if you want, you just tell, you can go ahead while the box is still with you, go back to your online account and say, you know what? I really want um, the uh, Jeremy here and they'll get it started. And probably by the time you've sent the box back, your new prescription lenses Mm -hmm. will be there. It's all prepaid. You don't have to go to the post office and wait in line to do anything like that. Every pair of glasses sold, they also distribute a pair of glasses to someone in need. There's a lot of people out there in the world that don't have glasses. You know what percentage of people in your life are wearing glasses? Now think of places where they don't have as much access to resource and technology, and you can imagine the numbers of people that don't have glasses mm-hmm. out there. So that's warbyparker.com slash book riot. It's a service I really like. It's a company I really like. Yeah, and, they're uh, great. I think if you're in the market for glasses in the near or medium term, you owe it to yourself to check them out. Thank you to them for sponsoring the show. Well, I so, think we have to go right to new books here. You want you want I want to talk about one cool thing. Okay, well, let's talk okay, about wait, one cool no, thing. Actually, two cool things, but I'll do them really quickly. Okay, go for it. The first is a new reading app that launched this week that's called Rooster. You go to readrooster.com, you can get a 2-week free trial and then if you like it, it's 4.99 a month from there but on. But tell the people what it is, Rebecca. I you didn't tell the people what it me is. A okay, I'm all right, okay. There. Don't rush a lady right, when I'm she's sorry. talking about a rooster. Okay, all right. Um, so Rather than overwhelming you with reading choices, the folks at Rooster thought, what can we do just to help people get more reading in their day? So every month they pick a new book and a classic book and they send them to you in bite-sized installments. So like, and I've been doing- Metaphorically, metaphorical Right, metaphorically bite-sized, but chunks of, you know, maybe 25 pages at a time. I've been doing it this week and you can pick the time of day that your installments come in. So at six o'clock every evening when I should be stepping away from my computer um, and finishing work, my phone buzzes. I get my little iPhone push notification and I can click on uh, rooster and it has given me the next chapter in the story um, of there's, you know, the new book and the classic book. And you can pick which one to start with. And they explain um, why they've made those choices. Um, it's brand new. Uh, you put your email address in at readrooster.com to request an invite, but they've been responding really quickly to those. Um, I think it's a cool idea, especially mm. if you're just looking for more ways to get some reading into your daily life. You could set the installments to drop at noon every day, and then you could read over your lunch break. Um, You know, the choice is limited rather than unlimited. So you don't have to suffer from like, which book to start with. (laughs) Um, I think it's pretty cool. It's just nice to see these options rolling out and the app works really well. It's beautiful. It's cheap too. slick. $4.99 a month for two books. Not bad at all. Mm. Um, Definitely worth something. I think definitely worth trying out if it's a thing that sounds good to you. Um, Also, our hero of the week is Lottie Fields, who was a New Yorker who died last summer at the age of 89. Um, She inherited wealth from her husband's family, and she loved to read, and so she left $6 million to the New York Public Library. Man. Just the fact that this exists in the world makes me feel good about life. Her executor said... One of her great joys was spending the weekend reading with her husband. I mean, come on. Yep. Mm-hmm. Good for that. Good Thank for you, Lottie. Lottie Fields. All right, new now books. new books. Now new books. A uh, little bit of a quieter week for new books yeah. this week, but we've got Shotgun Love Songs by Nicholas Butler, uh, which is a debut novel set in a small town in Wisconsin about a group of four friends who were you know, raised up together and then went out, as, you know, separated uh, as they grew up far flung, uh, but now they are all four brought back together for a wedding in their small town of Little Wing, Wisconsin. Uh, And while their lifelong bonds are still strong, there are also stresses between the friends, between husbands and wives. There's heartbreak, there's hope and healing. Um, I have this sitting on my pile to start very soon because I, I love the gang gets back together. Mm-hmm. Um, Meg Wallitzer's The Interestings did this really well last year, and I've been looking for uh, more novels to scratch that itch. You need to do a John or Kryptonite about this because I like this is one of my categories mm. too. 
So we can come up with it. We can write those together. Yeah, right. Uh, there's also The Books and Islands in Ojibwe County by Louise Erdrich, whom uh, we both love. Uh, and her book, The Roundhouse, won a lot of awards and accolades tw two years ago? Last year? I don't remember. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> recently. Uh, she's a terrific writer, and she writes about um, the Native American experience in uh, the, the Dakotas, right? The Dakotas? Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so this is a memoir about the um, books that she grew up with and um, the books of her uh, local community and the islands in that area. So maybe it's not the Dakotas. I'm sorry, Louise Erdrich. I did not study I'm looking geography. It up. Keep going. I'll, I'll um, come back to you. But this is great. If you, she's, Minnesota, she, Little Falls, Minnesota. Okay. So she's known for, um, you know, writing about uh, the roundhouse was set on a native American reservation. And she writes about that cultural experience and growing up um, in that part of the country. And so this is a memoir about uh, that experience, but also about the books of, uh, of that part of the, uh, of that part of America. I'm going to have to read this, Shinsky. I know. I think I really, I'm going to have like, to read this. This I is came, super interesting. I came across it in uh, Edelweiss. How did we is, not hear about I, this? I was like, why is no one talking about the fact that Louise Erdrich wrote a memoir about books and islands? <laughs> like, Jeez So Louise. we will talk about it. We are talking about it. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, I think I'm going to read it too. I came really late to the Louise Erdrich party. Um, but now that I'm here, I want to read all of the things. Oh, uh, you know, I think it's a reissue. I think that's it? why. Yeah. Uh, it looks like the hardcover came out like 10 years ago. Oh, okay. Well, still, why has no one told me about yeah, this? Yeah, anyway, that, we're still mad, but just at about a different thing. Right. This yeah. is a thing that exists, and we hope that you will find that news to be exciting. I'm uh, and read new that this summer. in paperback this week is The Bonobo and the Atheist by Franz DeWall. Uh, I just started reading this. He is one of the world's foremost primatologists, and the book uh, is really centered around the question of where morality comes from. And if you are a person who does not believe that morality uh, was given to us by like instilled in us by a higher power you might particularly wonder how can i be a good and moral person uh even though i don't believe in uh in god mm -hmm. and uh, his claim is that this comes from nature it comes from evolution and uh, he believes that based on years of science uh, and research studying primates and then looking at uh, similarities and differences between primate cultures and human culture it's uh, so far it's really interesting um definitely a controversial question but not presented uh, in my reading of it so far, at least it's not presented in like a flame war kind of way at all. He's not doing the Christopher Hitchens mm, uh, yeah. model. Not uh, only do you, not only are you not uniquely good, you are actually bad. That's the Christopher right. Hitchens. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the Christopher Hitchens model. Right. And those are the new books this week. All right. We were talkative today, Jeff. We were... I, I, I'm surprised. Was, where did we get hung up? I guess it was the boys and girls stuff. It was the boys and girls. We have feelings. We have, and the library <laughs> stuff. We were just fascinated by that. All right, let's do a, I got a quick question for you before we mm -hmm. go. Let's say you could commission someone to do a study. Uh-huh. What do you want? What, what, oh. do you, what do you need to know? Well, this, okay, the thing that, that you, you and could I... know, that you could know, right? Let's not like magical, mm. like I'm going to pull Amazon's face and they're going to tell me all their knowledge, right? Like, I want something that could pull like every book that a reader say looks at online in a three or six month period and how many times they're exposed to particular titles up against what their reading habits are. No, that, see, that's a magic one because we don't that's know. That's a magic that. one? No, like no. one that people actually would give you, inf like you fill out a oh, survey okay. and you could do something. Hmm. That's such a good question. I don't know. Can I think about it? Yeah, you'll you come back week? next week. And if, if, this is a good time to get into our how to get in touch with us. So I tell us what study you'd like to know. So it has to be something where, you know, you would design the survey question and some survey company would go do it for you. It has to, it should be about books and readings or buying or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll, maybe we'll get a few and we'll talk about them next oh. week. Oh, no, don't, don't, no, no, don't come up with it. This is a good one. No, we'll do but it or, I just came up with no, it. No, keep it for next week. We're running out of time anyway. We'll both come up with one for ourselves, and we'll make it like the top segment next week. Does that sound fun? Yes. Um, well, for you and I, and that's it's our show, we could do it. All of you guys just have to suffer through it. I'm so and sorry. And now I'm just going to have ants in my pants Yeah, for we'll a week. write it out, and don't show it to me. Um, <laughs> and uh, so submit your idea for a survey. And um, we'll we'll talk about them next week. And if you have a, you have an interesting one, we'll uh, mention you as well. Podcast at bookriot.com is the email. You can rate us, uh, not us. We're not actually on iTunes, but the show's on iTunes. Uh, just search for Book Riot there. Always can find us at bookriot.com on Facebook or Twitter. Um, Podcast.com slash 
excuse me. No, no, no. Come on, you do it. Your turn. Get, get me out of this. I'm going to dog myself podcast. a hole. Bookriot.com slash podcast is where you can find the show notes. You can find Jeff on Twitter at Reading Ape, and you can find me at Rebecca Shinsky. Uh, when this show drops this weekend, uh, also a new episode, uh, episode number five of our other podcast uh, that our dear friend and colleague Rita Mead hosts for Book Riot called Dear Book Nerd will be uh, going out as well. She is a great guest this week, and that is a show um, that answers your questions about life, love, and literature. It's a write-in advice show. It's been great so far. Uh, let's see. What else? Thank you to Warby Parker and to Swoon Reads for sponsoring this episode. And uh, our new quarterly boxes dropped oh, they this did. last That's week. Right. So if you've been keeping an eye on that, or if you think you might like to receive a once-a-quarter mailing of books and bookish stuff from Book Riot, you can search the BKR02 hashtag on Twitter and YouTube and see what uh, people have been getting from us in those boxes. We haven't revealed it on site yet, but there's plenty of them out plenty in the world of spoilers now. you can go find. And uh, you can sign up at quarterly.co slash product and you know, someone to receive said, them. Someone said something about it, someone who had got one that we're going to have to steal. Oh, we can credit them. They Book said it's nerd a, Christmas every day. No, no, or, no, no, no. Well, that's good too, but it's not every, every day. Month, every quarter. Um, it's like a care package for your book-loving soul. I mean, oh, that is good. That I is love good that. Yeah, uh, I, it our, made me just buy five of them just right now. I know. It, uh, uh, one of our longtime readers, Steph O'Terry, said it was like Book Nerd Christmas once a quarter, okay. uh, which we can use I them love both. that. Like a yeah, well, of books. We need we like can, seven or eight I am totally things. not above stealing the nice things that people say about, about this project. So uh, that's us, and that's our show. All right. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye.